How you doing, bud? I'm good, man. We've gotten to the summer months, haven't we? We are. You know, the rough thing about summer in the Bible reading is it's real easy to fall off during the summer. Have y'all noticed that? The routine changes. It's not like during the school year when you're in a pattern and you're traveling and things like that. So, so it's real easy to kind of drop out during the summer, isn't it? It is. But fortunately, the immersion reading is a very forgiving reading. So even if you fall two or three weeks behind, if you want to catch up, it's not really hard to do that. It's just two or three chapters. And even if you've fallen way, way behind, you know, you don't have to catch up. You could just start where we pick up and, and join the reading at that place. And so we're beginning this week at uh, Genesis 27, and we're beginning tonight at Genesis 22. So will you go there in your Bible? We're backing up a little bit, covering five weeks of reading tonight. And it's been an important five weeks because we've had a lot of transition, haven't we? We, we have, David, and I appreciate the song that we just sang about ancient words and what lessons these impart. And it's easy for us, I think, to look at a reading from chapter 22 to 26 that we've done over the last few weeks and just say, well, that's just ancient history. It has nothing to do with us. But really, it's about our spiritual heritage. It's about how God got us to where we are today. It's about you, and it's about me, what God has done to save us. And we need to see this as part of our story. We need to own this and say, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're part of my history, part of my spiritual heritage. That's exactly right. And tonight, we really, we're going back to Abraham, but we've been following Abraham arguably all the way even back to the end of chapter 11, right? Right. So we're going back to even our readings in the early spring. All this time, uh, we've been talking about the story of Abraham, or at least how Abraham fits into the Bible story. And in our reading the last few weeks, we made a, we made a transition away from that. So, so in Genesis 21, Isaac is born, and for a while, Genesis runs those two stories together, Isaac and Abraham. So in chapter 22, we have the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. And then in chapter 24, the search for a wife for Isaac. And then in chapter 25, as we'll see tonight, Abraham's going to die. But it's interesting, Max, that in chapter 25, before it's over, we're also introduced to Jacob, who quickly takes over as the next big character. And it dawned on me that really... There's only one chapter that's sort of exclusively yeah. about Isaac, isn't there? Yeah, and, you know, you see these names always together, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Jesus referred to those three together a number of times. And yet <clears throat> Isaac's history is rather small. Uh, he plays it a significant role. But the shift is to Jacob because Jacob is going to be the progenitor of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons are going to come from him. So he's critically important. And then oddly enough, when we get past that and we get to Joseph, we know more about him than any of the other three. Absolutely. So you know I'm ready to get to Joseph, right? You are eager. So, so here's what we have tonight in chapters 22 through 26, which is what we're covering. We're going to have the close of Abraham's story, then a quick little bit about Isaac, and then we're quickly moving on to Jacob, who will occupy a lot more of our attention. So let's go to chapter 22. Another thing about the reading uh, over the last couple of weeks 
is that we've also already done a lot of teaching, particularly about chapters 22 and 23. So we probably won't spend as much time digging into the details there because we have talked about that. Chapter 22 is the Isaac uh, story, the story of Isaac's sacrifice or potential sacrifice of Isaac. And, and, and then the latter part of that chapter, uh, we get this interesting little tidbit about Abraham's family and the update on that. So first of all, in verses 1 through 19, just remember this story that kind of freaks out Bible critics about God telling Abraham uh, in verse 2 there to go take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go sacrifice him in the land of Moriah. Remember what we have, there's a foreshadowing of Christ, right? Actually, God didn't ask Abraham to do with his son what God would do with his son, Jesus. And so we have a foreshadowing of that event there. Now, we did have a question about verse 2. Because in verse 2, God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, talking about Isaac, and go sacrifice him. And someone said, but Isaac isn't his only son. So why does God say your only son when we know that we have Ishmael as well, who was a son of Abraham. How do we rectify that? Well, first of all, the birth of Ishmael was not part of God's arrangement to bring a son. Uh, God wanted to bring a son to Abraham and Sarah. This is the only son of Sarah, and Isaac is the only son of promise. Uh, that's the critical thing to take note of here. In, in the strictest sense, yeah, you could say, okay, Abraham had a, another son, Ishmael. But this is about God's plan to bring a Savior into the world, and Isaac is designated as the son of promise. That's why that word is used for emphasis. In fact, in 25, we find he has even more children. Yeah. But remembering that it is the redemption story, Isaac is the relevant son. And even Ishmael, I think it's interesting, Ishmael is obviously well-beloved by Abraham. Abraham. Abraham even wants him to be the son of promise initially, but, uh, but he's not important to the story and receives very little attention there. And, and it's interesting here that what God tells Abraham to do to take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering, I mean, this is against everything that Abraham would normally do. He loves his son, so it's against affection. It's against logic because this is the son of promise. And how are we going to have Isaac to be the son of promise if he's sacrificed? And thirdly, it's against morality. Uh, you don't kill your kids. And yet in this case, acting at the direct command of God, Abraham is willing to do what God says. And of course, we already know that God is going to stay his hand at the last moment and says, now I know that you trust me. I almost wonder if the reason we have this request from God and the story preserved. Remember, there, there are only selected episodes of Abraham's life sure. that are saved for us. But if, I wonder if not in part that story is designed to help us appreciate what God did do as we consider what ultimately Abraham did not have to do. I, I, you know, it's very easy to talk about Jesus dying for our sins without grasping what it meant for God to give his only son. And I've wondered if Genesis 22 doesn't help us get that. I think it does, David. Uh, let's jump ahead to the end of the chapter because there is this little addendum right at the end, verses 20 through 24, where Abraham uh, learns some things about his family. 
And it seems as good a time as any, Max, to talk about the family tree of Abraham because we're kicking these names around all the time. And, and we have a lot of the names mentioned here toward the end of chapter 22. So why don't we talk a little bit about the family tree? Well, when you, when you look at chapter 22 and verse 20, uh, you see five verses there in a row which give us a bunch of names that seem to be irrelevant at the moment. And yet three of those names are critical to the Bible story. Uh, it says, it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Nahor is a brother to uh, Abraham. And then it mentions uh, some of those children, Huz and Buzz. Uh, my, my wife's two favorite Bible characters. Uh, yeah, those are great names, aren't they? Huz and Buzz, uh, and Kimuel, the father of Aram. And then in verse 22, it mentions as the last of those sons, it mentions Bethuel. And Bethuel is important to the Bible story. And why? Verse 23, Bethuel begot Rebekah. And we don't know who Rebekah is at this point, except she's a, a daughter of Bethuel. Now, we've prepared a, a chart of Abraham's family, and I have a, a several of these uh, copies on the table in the back. You can pick up a copy on your way out if you choose, and this looks really complicated, but if you follow the little key down at the bottom, it's not so hard. Abraham's family, uh, we of course start with Abraham's father, Terah. Terah has got Haran, Nahor, and Abraham, but also offspring is Sarah. Sarah, remember, is Abraham's wife. When you see the dashed line like this, that's who married whom. So Abraham and Sarah are married. We know that Isaac, the offspring, okay? Now over here is Nahor, Abraham's brother, and Milcah is married to Nahor. Milcah is his niece, okay? This is before the law, before all the restrictions about intermarriage. But this is where Bethuel comes from, from the marriage of Nahor and Milcah. That's what we see in our text. Why is Bethuel important? Because Bethuel is the father of two important Bible characters, Laban, who we're going to see a whole lot more about. He appears in two separate stories here in the book of Genesis, and also Rebekah. Why is Rebekah important? We've just been introduced to her because she is going to be married to Isaac, and they're going to give offspring they're going to give uh, birth to Esau and to Jacob. And, of course, Jacob is important to the Bible story. Jacob marries two of Laban's children, Leah and Rachel, and that's where the 12 Israelite tribes come from. Now, this looks really complicated, but if you'll spend some time looking at the chart, not now, you can just glance at it, but pick up a copy. You'll see them printed, not in black, but printed white copies. Where did it go? Here it is. You'll find some of these on the table in the back, and it will really help you to get a good feel for this family. And again, we're learning about our spiritual heritage, David. And, and, and remembering that, that one of the interesting things that Genesis does is it often introduces characters that later become important. Abraham is briefly introduced at the end of chapter 11, and then he takes over as this really, really important character. And so I think here at the end of 22, you have uh, Bethuel mentioned and Rebecca, who is going to become a key player, particularly Rebecca, in the rest of the story. And so, and so we do get to that part, and it, we do wonder, well, why is this here? Well, just read a little further, and suddenly Rebecca becomes really important to us. Uh, 23, y'all ready to move on? Chapter 23 
Of course, Hunter talked to us about that chapter where Sarah dies. And again, from our perspective, and I think it really has a lot to do with these assumptions we bring to the reading. But from our perspective, 23 looks strange because we're told that Sarah's die dies. And then what's the chapter all about? Uh, they're negotiating over where they're going to bury her. I mean, we don't, we're not told about the family's mourning. We're not told about the funeral and the flowers and who attended and what was said. Uh, we go immediately to this negotiation with the Hittite Ephron over the cave of Machpelah where they're going to bury her. And so remember what we've emphasized over and over again. When you encounter these things in your Genesis reading, ask yourself the question, why am I being told this? Why do we move right over the death of Sarah to this intense negotiation over the land? And I think the answer is found down in verse number 19, where after the negotiations are over, the text says, after this Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave or, or in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan. There it is. This was, this was a little down payment, Max on the land promise. Abraham wouldn't be there when Joshua and Israel marched in and conquered the land. He would never see that. But he did own this piece of land that became very, very important to them because this became their burial ground. When, when, when Jacob dies down in Egypt, they take him to Machpelah and they bury him there. And there, it's, it's actually an expression of Abraham's faith this is all they own right now, but he knows one day this is going to belong to my family. He has faith in the promise, and so I'm going to bury my family. Yeah, this, this cave at Machpelah becomes the burial place for all of Abraham's family. Sarah, the first to be buried there, but Abram, Abraham is going to be buried there also. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah will be buried there. Jacob and Leah, only Rachel is missing from this. She is not buried in this place. It's also interesting that we're introduced to the death of Sarah by saying that she lived to, to be 127 years. It's, it's interesting, and I understand this to be the only woman whose complete age is given in the Scripture. There's no other, no other case where that's found in Scripture where her complete age is given. You're saying it all the time with men. Uh, but you've also got this strange negotiation here where uh, it appears as though Ephron is offering the cage, the, the, the cave free of charge to Abraham. Oh, well, just, uh, yeah, take it, it's yours. Uh, we wouldn't withhold with you. And uh, some sources say that this was the way that negotiations went in ancient, in ancient times among some of the people. But if he truly intended to give it to Abraham, why mention a price? Yeah, he says, you know, you can have it. What's 400 pieces of silver between you and me? Uh, that's like someone that says, look, I'm going to give you this old car. Uh, you know, what's $2,000 between you and me? Why mention a price if you're going to give it to me? And uh, uh, in any case, I know this, that it's wise for Abraham to buy this and not to receive it free of charge. It's wise for him to pay it and to pay the full price, and he does so in front of witnesses. Why? So there's no question. This piece of land in Canaan belongs to Abraham. 
And this cave, by the way, is an important archaeological site, and it's revered among the Jews even to this day. It's located in the old city of Hebron, right in the center part of the city, and as many as 300,000 visitors go to this place every year. I'm reminded as you make that point that we have to, we, we have to be careful not to read our assumptions into the text. I, I think too often we get caught up and we begin to think of this as like, well, this is a biography of Abraham. And it's not. It's the redemption story. And so as we view these episodes, they all have to be seen from that angle, don't they? That this is, this is in some way advancing the story of redemption, not telling us everything we'd like to know about Abraham. In fact, sometimes that's frustrating because we would like to know more about some of this stuff, and we're not always given the details we would like, are we? I think it's also important here that in the very last verse of this chapter, David, it says this land was deeded to Abraham. There was some kind of an official document where Abraham could walk away and say, this property now belongs to me. Just like today, we have deeds on our property, and so it was here. I I think that's critical. All right, jumping ahead to 24. 22, we had the sacrifice. 23, the death of Sarah. Now in 24, we have this ordeal where Abraham is trying to find a wife for Isaac. And so the entire chapter, what is it, 67 verses? Is it verses? the longest chapter we've seen so far? Uh, surely it is thus far. It may be the longest chapter in the book. I'm not sure about that. But yes, yeah, 67 verses to tell the story. And essentially, there's no sort of breaking this chapter up. It's one story from beginning to end. It's how do we find a wife for Isaac? And it's so important to Abraham that it not be one of the one of the women from the land. And so maybe that's a good place to start. Why was it so critical that he not marry one of the women of the land, but one from his own family, in essence. Well, Abraham in the previous chapter has taken possession of a piece of land in Canaan, but he's not going to have a Canaanite woman for his son. Uh, Abraham's concern, I think, should be the concern of every parent today. Who our kids marry has far-reaching consequences. And the people of Canaan, remember that they are idolaters. And what better way to mess everything up early in the game here in this redemption story than to have the the son of promise marry an idolater. So let's go back and let's get someone that is from this family, from the same family, and you can again see that on the chart, uh, someone who is a believer in God. Another, Another reason that might be driving his concern here is God has told him that this land in the future belonged to his family, mm-hmm. which meant what was going to happen to the Canaanites. The Canaanites were being driven out. Yeah. And so Abraham understands that long term, the Canaanites are not staying here. They're going to be supplanted by my family. We can't mix these two because the Canaanites are not here to stay. And besides all that, intermarrying with the Canaanites, that just never worked well, did it? Never. And I'm thinking about the end of chapter 26, where uh, down in verse 34, it talks about Esau, who married among the Hittites, and what grief that was to his mother and father. Yeah, the Hittites were Canaanites. Uh, We did have a couple of questions about chapter 24. One question was from verse 16, and this may just be a translation issue, why there was such emphasis put on Rebecca's virginity. Did you want to comment on that passage, the question about that? 
Well, it, it says that she was very beautiful to behold, a virgin no man had known her. It is often the case in Hebrew uh, language or in Hebrew poetry that a point is said twice in two different ways, but makes the same point for emphasis sake. You find that throughout the Psalms, throughout the Proverbs, you find it even in the language of Jesus, that sometimes a statement is made once and then worded in a different way a second time, just to emphasize this is something to see. And whenever you see that, you need to pay special attention to it. Uh, this woman is, is a woman of purity. Uh, the woman is going to play a key role in God's plan. And Abraham wants a woman of purity for his son. And so that's what's being emphasized by the language. You know, Jewish history, uh, I think, uh, shows here, the text shows us that uh, uh, he, uh, in taking the wife, is about 40 years old. And Jewish history says she, she was 14 years old. And, of course, 14 was not an uncommon age for people to marry in that time. Uh, jumping ahead to verse 55, uh, we also had a question there. Uh, verse 55, this is chapter 24, verse 55. Uh, the text says, Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days after that she may go. This is at the very end of the process where, where Laban and her mother appear at the very end to be reluctant to let her go. And, and the question is, uh, was Laban up to something here? Now, when you're dealing with Laban, that's a perfectly relevant question to ask, though we don't know that at this point completely, but, but he is a snake. We don't know how dishonest this man is at this point. But we, we learn will. that later. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, well, there is an interesting thing back, uh, it's in verse 30, uh, when uh, Rebecca comes and tells about this man she encounters. Uh, the text says of Laban, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. So when he saw the, 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 the jewelry, he wanted to go find out who this guy was. So that gives us kind of a clue of what he's about. He's a guy that's all about the money here. And if he's pulling something fast in verse 55, we sure don't know what it is. But as we get deeper into his story, it's very clear that he's a scoundrel. Well, let's, let's remember something about this chapter. Who's in charge? Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. But the servant is not in charge. It is God who is in charge. The servant, when he approaches the place where this family is, he says, Lord, here, help me with this. And this is an example of the providence of God. God is directing this whole thing. And so uh, what we're learning here is that this is not the servant's choice. And not Abraham's choice. This is God's choice of a wife for Isaac. One last question we had about verse 67. There is this statement that Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of Sarah, his mother. And what would have been the significance of that? And, and, and really, that's one of those questions you can't answer because it doesn't tell us that. It may have just been a convenience. It may have been Sarah's tent was empty because she had died, and that provided a place for Rebecca to stay, though there may have been more to it than that too. Well, what we do learn from this text is that Sarah had a tent. And I think we learned that earlier in another place where Sarah was at the tent door and she laughed. You remember that story. But it evidently was the case among these tribes, among these peoples, 
that the women had their tent and the husband had his tent. We learned that, remember, in the story of Rachel and Leah. Rachel had her tent. Leah had her tent. And so this was not an uncommon thing for the women to have a tent that was their place of privacy away from the husband's tent or the men's tents. So you, you, I think, learned that from this story. But I think it's significant he goes to Sarah's tent because what's getting ready to happen, it's part of that transition when you think about it. Uh, Sarah has died, and now Rebecca is going to become the second Sarah, and soon Isaac will become the next Abraham, so to speak, as the head of the family and Rebecca taking on Sarah's role as, as you might say, the number one woman among this family. Well, with the passing of Abraham, you have Isaac now as the patriarch of yep. the family. With the passing of Sarah, you're going to have Rebecca as the new matriarch of the family. And yep. I think it's significant to recognize that. And maybe that also is connected with going into Sarah's tent. Yeah, I wonder about that. Let's yeah. press on to 25. Got two more chapters to cover before we run out of time. Uh, chapter 25 is significant because it is the death of Abraham. But that's only about the first 10 or 11 verses there. We have a brief little bit after that in verses 12 through 18 about Ishmael. And then in verse 19, we start talking about the family of Isaac and Jacob is introduced. So in these first 11 verses, it's interesting because we don't just learn about his death. We learn some more about his life, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, we learn about how he deals with his children. Yeah. And it's important to note that these sons, he has these sons, these several boys. Well, pause on that because he has another wife. Yeah, he marries Keturah. He mar he, or at some point he has married yeah. Keturah. And uh, how many children? I mean, there's a, a long list of sons there that are given there. But these sons get no inheritance. Abraham gives them gifts. But it's important to note that the inheritance goes exclusively to Isaac. And in doing this, there's no question then about where the promise is going to go. It is going to be through Isaac that this nation is going to come. It's going to be through Isaac that the land promise would be fulfilled. And it will be through Isaac that the seed promise is going to be filled. So Isaac and Isaac only is the child of promise. That's why no one else gets the inheritance. So that's interesting because you go back, I think it's in 21, where Sarah is the first one to make this clear distinction between Isaac and Ishmael. And then in 22, your only son, Isaac. And then we get to here, 20, here to 25, and clearly there's a distinction made between Isaac and all these other sons. They're not of the same rank and position in the family. Yes, and, and the passage you just referenced about Sarah. Sarah said that this son, Ishmael, will not be an heir with my son. And boy, that's fulfilled here clearly. Let's press on. I'm, I'm going to pass over this reference to Ishmael and focus on on the birth of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, uh, that began with trouble, didn't it? It did. Uh, in fact, there's going to be trouble along the way for the rest of the lives well, of those boys. Well, while she's pregnant, the yeah. children struggle within her. Uh, one of the questions we got was, is, is what did it mean when she went into the heart of the Lord? And my answer was, I don't know. Uh, she spoke to God about this, what exactly it looked like, I don't know. But God responds to her and says, two nations, this is 25, 23, 
Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the other and the older shall serve the younger. And so, from the very outset of this story, we know that Jacob and Esau are going to have problems. Yeah, and uh, the descendants of Jacob and Esau are still fighting each other today, for whatever that's worth. Well, they're two very different children. Yeah. Uh, Esau is kind of a rugged hunter. And, well, they were kind of nice to Jacob. They said he was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Y'all can interpret that as you wish. Let's just say he's a little softer than his brother. How about that? He was. And, and what that does is it creates affinity between the two parents. So daddy likes the food the hunter brings home, and so he's connected to him. And mama likes the boy that's hanging around the house. And so we have favoritism shown by the parents toward the two children. And favoritism always does what? Well, it just wreaks havoc in the family. It always causes trouble in a family. So notice, this is the first time we encounter this. And for the rest of the story, till we get to Genesis 50, the problem of favoritism factors into this family drama all the way through the story. And then we have the, the, the stew story at the very end. And, and, and so that's one of those things you need to read and say, why is this here? Why are we given the stew story? And, and the reason is it exposes the character of these two boys. You have Esau, who is impulsive and shallow, and Jacob, who's an opportunist and a manipulator, and he uses this opportunity. His brother's hungry, and he offers to give him food at the price of his birthright. By the way, verse 34 makes clear who the bad guy is in the story. I'm not passing over Jacob's manipulation, but verse 34 says that Esau despised his birthright. And that word despise means to treat lightly. To treat lightly. This was an important thing that should have been his as the firstborn, but he was willing to give it away for a, uh, for a bowl of red beans. He didn't care about it. Yeah. He was a shallow man that way, and not the son through whom the promise was going to flow, perhaps coming back to what was his basic character. But, but the struggle in the womb and then the stew story all set us up for what is going to be the drama throughout the rest of their story together. And the, the name Jacob means supplanter, supplanter. And that's one who takes the place of another. Or the word Jacob is also carries the idea of a deceiver. And we're going to see that uh, he is a deceiver. Uh, but Jacob did not obtain the blessing because of his deceit. He obtained the blessing in spite of his deceit. Uh, that which was promised, God had already promised his mother how this was going to shake out in the end. But that which was promised could have been received in some good way. But Jacob and his mother, not trusting God's promise, did something that they should not have done, sought the promised blessing in a wrong way, and it caused all kinds of problems in the family. Well, it did, but, but, but here's the important thing, and we need to remember about, this, about the promise. The promise flows through, flows through God's chosen vessel. Yeah. It isn't about who's firstborn. It isn't about who, in Abraham's case, who he wanted the son of blessing to be. God chooses his vessel, and he does that throughout the story. All right, it's 6.01, and we haven't even talked about 26. Let's do it fast, okay? 26 is basically, <laughs> folks, Isaac's story. It's all we have that is exclusively devoted to Isaac. So probably, Max, the most important thing here are these opening verses where God repeats 
the promises to Isaac. Evidently, in fact, it's interesting how his life parallels his dad, right? So, so he has to deal with a famine like his dad did. And evidently, verse 2 implies that he was tempted to go down to Egypt, and God puts a stop to that. And he tells them, this is 26.3, look, sojourn in this land, I will be with you, I will bless you, I will give these lands to you. This is the land promise. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. There's the nation promise. And then finally, he says, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so to Isaac, all the promises of Abraham are repeated. He is God's vessel to carry this through his generation. So that's where it opens. But then we have these familiar stories just like his dad. He lies about his wife because he's afraid people are going to kill him. He lies to Abimelech about his wife, because he's afraid they're going to kill him. And that irritates Abimelech, just as it did when Abraham did it. And, and then the chapter closes with Abimelech realizing that just like Abraham, this guy is a guy I need to be friends with, and so they make a covenant with each other. chapter says he became wealthy, just like Abraham gave all of his wealth to Isaac, but the wealth has gone to Isaac, his independence. Yeah. Lots Since your mic is dead, you want me to wrap this up? So, so what's the point of all of this, folks? This whole story is showing us how God working through this family is working out a plan to bring a Savior into the world so that on July 21st, 2019, some lost soul, maybe sitting in this crowd, could find salvation in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, God worked out this plan just to rescue you from your sins. So if you're sitting here tonight bearing the guilt of your sin and you need to do something about that, God through Jesus has provided a way and we want to help you find that way. If you need to respond, make your way down to the front right now while we stand, while we sing.